You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Count it a blessing to be opening God's Word with you this morning. Uh, And as we do so, I want us to think about stories. And so as we think about stories, you know, stories have just a very unique opportunity to transport us to different places, to transport us to different worlds where the author has created and drawn us into an opportunity that we can experience what they are doing and what they are saying. And so the good story writers get us to root for their heroes. They get us to root against their villains. They get us to an experience that allows us to be where we are in light of what they're trying to do, to elicit a certain response from us. And as they're seeking to elicit that response from us, they're trying to call us into action. And so the gospel writers have that great opportunity as well for them to take us to a new place, for them to allow us to be drawn in to their stories. And if you're like me, uh, my wife will tell you I'm actually, I'm a crier in movies, right? They get me, they get me a little teary, you know, different things. And she's looking over like, wait, are you crying? Like, yes, I'm crying. Like, are you not crying? Like, don't you see what's going on here? Uh, but it's interesting, like different times, different things will, will strike me that won't strike her. It'll strike her that won't strike me. And as they do that, there are different opportunities for those authors to be drawing us into their story to be making their stories so real that we can't help but react to what they're trying to do. And as we think through that this morning, what we're going to see is that there's a story about a king who wants to use you for his kingdom. And that's our big idea this morning, that there is a king who wants to use you for his kingdom. And we're going to see that in John chapter 21 as we walk through this instance in John's life. But before we get there, I want to take you back to a time in my life uh, when I was fishing with my grandfather. And so I'd known for a long time that, you know, there's little things like fables and there's little stories that we tell that are fake that are supposed to teach us how to be good kids and be nice to each other and things like that. Uh, But it really wasn't until I was in high school that I experienced an opportunity where there was something that was teaching me that was in a situation where it actually connected with me as an individual. And so as Jeff shared, uh, you know, I have, he knew me as a student, if he would be able to share more of that. There were lots of ups and downs, more downs than ups at certain seasons. Uh, And my grandfather was present in a great deal of my life, and we would go uh, fishing often, and that was one of the things that he really enjoyed to do. So I'd have an opportunity to go fishing with him. Usually I got in the boat with him, and there'd be another boat with my dad and my brothers and things like that. And uh, Inevitably, usually I was in trouble for something as we were fishing. And he had this way of telling stories where the story would bring me to a point where I would realize that the story was not so much about him and his life, but it was an opportunity for me in my current situation. And so he would take me back through his life to the difficulties that he had as a child being raised, uh, as well as just working as a child, whether it was a story in the Navy, a story of him as an adult, working with his kids or doing different things in the community. He would transport me to this place and I would be so infatuated in the story and following and seeing what was happening with him that it wouldn't be until we got to the very end that I realized that he was telling the story not to impart just knowledge of his life to me, but to impart wisdom for me to follow in my own life. 
And so he would bring me to that point where I started to realize, hey, he's telling this not because he thinks it's something that it would be good for me to know, but it's something that I needed to know in that time. And we see that today in John chapter 21, I believe. And as we walk through John chapter 21, we're just transporting ourselves into that context. And so I think it's very, very beneficial for us to get a little bit of the context of what's going on there. And so I would invite you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some right there in front of you. It's on page 907 as you go to John chapter 21. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that is our gift to you so that you can study it and allow it to transform you in the way which has transformed so many in this room. And so the Gospel of John is the fourth of the Gospels that's written, the good news of the Jesus Christ that we celebrate each Sunday morning here. And as you walk through the Gospel of John, it's really something that only an intimate person to Jesus would have an account of. And that's what we have with its writer, John. So John, called the beloved disciple, is able to give us some eyewitness situations. He's able to pull the curtain back and allow us to see greater details of what's going on. We have some teaching that's not found in other scriptures. We have some extended dialogue that takes place that would have only been known by the ones closest to him. We have his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that displays the depths of what he was going through that only those in the garden would have known. And here in John chapter 20 and 21, we see that we also have an opportunity to see these very personal interactions between Jesus and his disciples after his resurrection prior to his ascension. And as we focus on John's account here of the restoration of Peter, it's important for us to understand that we will see how we, like Peter, can be part of God relating to his broken, sinful, and imperfect followers. And in doing so, we're going to walk through an assessment that has three parts about the king's desire to use us for his kingdom. And these three assessments will allow us to see if we are ready for what God has in store for us. So we pick up in John chapter 21. I invite you to follow along as we read it here this morning. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. They laid the fish on it into the bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish here that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, 
Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. So we pick up in this story at a very, very pivotal part in the life of Peter. It's been a crazy couple of weeks for this guy when we think about what's happened, right? He went into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry alongside the one who is hailed as a king. He was riding there like a celebrity surrounded by the people that were rejoicing for his master. He went through all the different events that took place in that festival week. He was there with the Lord sharing an intimate meal when he professed that he would not deny, though all around him would continue to deny Jesus. But then he watches as his Savior is betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and buried. And like the rest, scatters. He's left at that point waiting for what's next. But then he celebrates alongside the rest of the disciples. When they hear that their Savior is risen, he experiences the risen Savior. But now he's told, like the rest of the disciples, to go wait for Jesus in Galilee. It's Matthew 28, 16 says he sent them ahead of him. And so they're sitting here waiting, wondering, what now? What do you do when you failed like he has? What do you do... When you're waiting to see if Jesus still wants to use you, what do you do? And we know he's not by himself in this. In fact, the text is very, very clear that there's other disciples here with them. We can look back and he appears to these seven, two of which are not named. But we also know that those disciples are in the same situation as Peter. We can look back at Mark chapter 14, verse 31, and see when Peter took his great stand for Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples, they likewise said they would do the same. It reads, but Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were also saying the same thing. So while Peter might have been the most vocal, the rest of the disciples were in the same situation wondering, what's next? Does the Savior still need me? He clearly was able to do all of this without me because in his time of need, I was nowhere to be found. They sit and they wonder and they think what's going on. But Peter especially, right? He'd been given a specific warning. He was told that his denial was imminent. He was told 
that he had a period of time to watch out for it. And then think about yourself. If somebody told you something bad is going to happen in the next 12 hours, you would probably be on your guard for that, right? You'd probably at least think you were ready, maybe surround yourself by some people who can help you, put yourself in a bubble, whatever it takes to make sure that that doesn't happen because you have that specific warning. But Jesus takes Peter and the others into the garden and he says, hey, sit here and pray three times. Sit here and pray so that you don't enter into this temptation that's coming. Yet, he fails. All three times he's found sleeping. Why is it that in his time where he's told he's going to be tested, is he unable to even prepare for that test? You see, maybe it's that he's used to the success and the safety that Jesus offers. He hasn't allowed Peter to fail. We don't see Peter with the other disciples who fail healing the man after the transfiguration. He was with Jesus at the transfiguration. He wasn't there for these failures in other places. Maybe it's that Peter is just feeling that Jesus will continue to provide for him. Or maybe it's, it's been a crazy week. He's just exhausted. His humanity takes him over. Nonetheless, he's sitting there questioning why it was that he was unable to pass the Savior's test. When he sits here thinking about this, we meet him here in Galilee doing the one thing that he knows how to do. I call this his Anna moment, right? Frozen 2, like all Disney characters, when they experience an existential crisis, they do the one thing they know how to do, they sing, right? So she sings, I won't sing it for you, but she sings a song that's very fitting for us to reflect on here. She says, take a step, step again. It's all that I can do, the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is the one that I can make. You've got fishermen at a lake waiting to find something to do. They're going to go fishing, right? That's what's going to happen. Don't look at this as, hey, Peter has forsaken everything of the Lord. He's turned his back on the ministry. He says, hey, I'm just going to go back fishing. That's not what's happening here. You have people trying to figure out what can I do for my next thing? How do I move on from here? He does the one thing he knows how to do, to go fishing. And the rest of the disciples, whether it's lack of a better thing or Peter's leadership once again shining through, they join him in this. And interestingly enough, we find them at the same place that we met them, fishing and catching nothing. Great fishermen that Jesus has chosen here, right? Out all night, catching nothing. And so, if you've ever been around fishermen who don't catch anything, the last thing that they're looking for is somebody else to come alongside and ask them how many fish they've caught. It's exactly what Jesus does. He comes there. He's veiled from them. They don't know who it is. Calls from the shore. Calls them children, even. Uh, says, hey, children, have you caught anything? Sure that if we got a little insight into the response, I'm sure it was very pleasant and no. Uh, and he says, well, hey, why don't you cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they do that and we realize that they see that that person on the shore is the Lord. It's John who notes that first. It's John who then tells that to Peter. And it's John who records that Peter then grabs his garments, jumps into the water, and heads to the shore. 
wanting to meet his Savior, seeing that he has come back for them, that they did what they were supposed to for once, and now he's ready to talk with them. The rest of the disciples, they gather the the fish, they bring it to the shore, they bring everything up on there, and they meet him there for breakfast. But for once, they're silent. If you look back into our text, nobody's talking. They're not asking him questions of favors for his kingdom anymore. They're not asking him what's next. They're waiting because they're pondering a question. The question in their mind is, are you worthy? Are you worthy? It's the first stage in the assessment of your usefulness to the kingdom of God is understanding your worthiness. Because you see, if we had asked Peter weeks before about his worthiness, the guy had stats to back up his ministry successes, right? We're talking about Peter, the guy who had been present for miraculous healings, the man who had cast out demons, the man who had provided for the multitudes, the guy who had walked on water, the guy who has the keys to the kingdom, whatever that means. He doesn't even know, but he has it. He has everything that anyone could ask of him in terms of man-made preparation for ministry. But... The man who was so bold to even tell Jesus that he didn't know what he was talking about sits silently because he's pondering his own worthiness. Would Jesus be willing to use him? You see, he's been humbled and defeated by his own failures. He's been brought low at the time in which he felt like he should have been the highest. He's been transformed by God. Yet God comes and steps in the form of Jesus into their life to do the same thing that he's done for them each step of the way, to display that he is the provider, the protector, and their savior. He shares a meal with them, sits once again with them as equals, and does what he has always done in providing for their most basic need. You see, they want to assess their worthiness and they're looking for the answer, yes, hoping that Jesus will pick and use them. But what they see and what they need to learn is that the answer is and has always been no. They're not worthy. They never were. It wasn't their own worthiness that had used God to call them to bring them into part of his ministry. It wasn't because they were something special. It wasn't because they had done something or grown to be something special. It was because God was willing to use them despite who they were. And like the multitudes that Jesus had compassion for, he has compassion on his disciples and understands them in their moment of need. He understands the failure that they've been through and understands what's taken place and what they need to make that next step. He does what any leader must do to build on failures. He draws those men close who need him the most. Which leads us to the second step of that assessment. The second step of the assessment is, are you willing? He asks Peter this question, but we ask Peter this question. We could have asked it of any of the disciples. But as Peter has had a very visible failure, a very documented one, we know it represents the same failure that was there with all of the rest. And it's an example that even Peter, the one who has fallen the furthest, if it's possible for him to be restored, 
If it's possible for him to still be used despite his adamant nature of saying, I'm never going to fail, I will always be beside you. If he can use even Peter, he can use those other ones who feel like they've fallen less. So Peter has here this visible restoration that takes place. And we have an interchange between Jesus and Peter that focuses on him asking him if he loves him. Now, a lot has been written about the two different words that are used here in this text for love. We have agape, which is the a sacrificial, never-ending love that takes place, which is the one Jesus starts with. We have phileo, which is the brotherly love that takes place with Peter's responses. But if we're to look at the rest of the Gospel of John, those two words have been used interchangeably. So it would be wrong for us to focus so much on just those two words in this interaction. There's something bigger that's taking place. Because the good shepherd in John chapter 15 displays both agape and phileo love. And those words switch back and forth throughout that account. Knowing that he's not getting or trying to get Peter to say this one magical word that shows that he's been restored. But instead, God is bringing Peter to the place where he understands that with humility, forgiveness, repentance, there is restoration. With humility, forgiveness, and repentance, there's restoration for Peter and for all of the citizens who seek to be useful to the kingdom. You see, when we get to that third time that Jesus asked the question, he does use the same word, that Peter's been using. He says, do you love me? And Peter's grieved. He's broken. He said, I've already, I've already told you twice I love you. And he starts with the one thing that he knows the most. He says, Lord, you know everything. You see, Peter knows He wants to love Jesus, but he knows he can't. But he knows that Jesus knows everything. He knows Jesus knew where the fish were when they first met. He knows that Jesus knew how to provide the wine for the people at the wedding in Cana. He knows that Jesus knew about the sinfulness of the temple. He knows that Jesus knew how to provide for all of the people that were around him. He knew how Jesus knew what was in store in Jerusalem. How he knew specific people were going to be at places with items that they would use for their celebration. He knows that Jesus knew about his failure. He knows that Jesus knows Peter. And knows that Peter wants to love him. But knows that Peter can never do that by himself. We see the pain of Peter as he responds saying, I want to love you, but I'm not sure if I'm good enough. And it teaches us a great principle about our usefulness in the kingdom of God. Our usefulness in the kingdom of God is not dependent upon our own worthiness, and it never has been. Because we are only worthy because of the finished work of God upon the cross. It is dependent upon our willingness To be used by him despite our failures and despite the nothing that we are. Are you willing to be used by God for his kingdom? 
You see, Peter's restoration through his, his humility, his repentance, and the walk and desire to live in obedience to the commands that Jesus has laid out for him is key to displaying for all of us how God desires to use us. Because we have to answer these two questions about ourselves. Do we see ourselves in our own worthiness or lack thereof? And are we willing to follow Jesus? Because if we answer both of those questions incorrectly, then the third facet of what we're going to talk about this morning is irrelevant because we're not at the place where we can move forward. You see, we answer these two questions of the assessment. The third one is a response given by the evaluator. The evaluator says, you are ready. If you've answered those two questions right, you are ready. But you'll notice there's an asterisk there. It's very small, but it's there. And it's there for a reason. Because if you've answered those questions incorrectly, I don't want you to think you're ready because you're not. And it's also there because it's actually by saying you're ready, I'm not actually saying you are ready, but I'm saying God is ready for you. God is ready for you. But we feel like we are ready, which is part of our problem as humans. We think we can take control of these things, these situations, and that we can do them by ourselves. but we were never supposed to do them by ourselves, We were always supposed to be vessels using the gospel and taking it to the places that God desires it to be. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says it this way, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What Paul is saying in that situation is the valuable thing in the jar of clay was not the jar, but what was in the jar. He wants us to be willing vessels to take the gospel wherever he calls us, wherever he places us, so that the power of the gospel, what's inside the jar, will be put on display. And when we do that, it extends the kingdom of God and extends his glory wherever we're at. But Peter needed this restoration, just as we need this opportunity to reflect on it. Because Peter was missing some certain things. When Peter had been living before, when he'd been doing all these bold things that we read about in the scriptures, he was lacking his ability to succeed because he was lacking the tools that God had provided for him. You see, he had stepped out and done things by himself and God had chosen to allow him to experience success because Jesus was there with him. And while Peter doesn't feel this at the time, God is still ready to use and shape Peter into the man that we read about in Acts and in Peter's epistles as well. You see, he had been the captain of his life and he'd made all these decisions. And Jesus here tells him, hey, it's not going to be like that anymore. You're going to be led by other people, including led to your death. And Peter's like, well, what about that guy? We read on in our text, we see he's really more concerned about what's going to happen with John rather than explaining to me a little bit more about what you're going to do with me, Jesus. So Peter still needed some transformation to take place, but that transformation takes place because of these tools that God provides for him. And I wish you all could have been with us at camp this year as we were able to reflect on these tools that God has given us to live our Christian life and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so as we did that, we studied the hypostatic union or the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as we experienced the teaching on the hypostatic union, we saw what allowed Jesus to have victory over temptation in Satan was the power of the Spirit in his life. 
It wasn't the fact that he was fully God because he had laid aside the things of being God so that he could be a man on earth. And he, with the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to resist the temptation of Satan, allowing him to break the power of sin and the bondage of sin and the bondage of death and allowing him to then offer that victory to all of us. But it's not just that power of the Spirit that took place. It's the abiding word of God in our life. The fact that we have God's word and can be partakers of it and can have it in our life. As well as the fellowship of the believers around us. That are the tools that God gives us to allow us to be victorious in our stands against the devil and in our day-to-day lives. Because Peter, prior to this point, was lacking those things. We shouldn't be surprised he failed. He was unprepared. He didn't have what he needed to be successful because he wasn't enough. He wasn't worthy of doing all the things that he'd done, but God chose to use him nonetheless. So as Peter's life is transformed, he begins to understand the importance of these tools, but it leads us to a question of thinking, are we at that place? You know, this summer has been great for us as a family. We spent a lot of time at the pool. My daughter, Rory, loves going to the pool. She loves, she's got a big smile on her face. I wish she could see that. Um, She loves being at the pool, right? And she's getting to that age where she wants to be like the big kids, wants to do all the things that the rest of the kids are doing. But she's still got some fears, right? Every kid has a healthy fear of the water. Every kid's taken on a little bit too much water a couple times and, and doesn't want to be under the water, right? And so she sees the big kids jumping in and doing all the things that they're doing and wants to do those things. So she can't swim. She's still in a little puddle jumper and she is on the side and wants to do what the big kids are doing, jumping in. Um, But it's not really the same. So when she tries to jump in, she'll sit down on the edge and slide in. And then she'll look at us and say, I did it. And I'll be like, no, you didn't. Um, We'll get her back up on there and we'll say, no, you stand and you jump. And her mom or I, Amy, we're standing there. We're working through that with her. Like, no, you can jump. And she'll slowly sit down and slide in. I did it. No, you didn't. You didn't do it because you never went underwater. You never jumped in. That's the whole thing of jumping in and being like the big kids who are doing those things. And while it's cute to watch that in her, it's kind of telling that it's the same of us in our Christian life. We want to see the amazing things that God's going to do, but we're not willing to put ourselves in the place where we risk it to be used by him. We want to say, I I have all control over this. I have my puddle jumper on. I'm going to slide in by myself. I've got this. I can do this all by myself. But God's looking at us and saying, no, you can't. You didn't do it. It's not what I'm looking for, for my kingdom and to be useful in my kingdom. You see, we have to understand the safety and the tools and the things that he's placed in our life. And we have to trust in faith and jump out and allow him to use us through that. And it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right every time. But he gives us the pathway to restoration and forgiveness and repentance that will get us back to the place that we can grow and continue to be used and moved by him. Because you see, part of our life and part of God's work in our life is built on our failures. It's what Peter shows us today. If Peter didn't fail, if he had it all right, would he need this? Would we need this? If Peter never failed, would we think that God would use any of us who realize we fail? 
You see, the failures in our life, the opportunity that we have to be molded and shaped by the Lord displays the surpassing power of the gospel and the way in which we must be a part of that if we're to be used by God. That his power has to be in us. You know, I wish we had time to walk through everything that Peter does as he grows from this point. We see him make powerful stands for the church in the book of Acts. But I want to draw our attention to a couple of passages, actually several passages, that we see from his own pen in First and Second Peter. You see, Peter writes about his life and the things that God has taught him for the benefit of others, the church in his day, as well as us today. And I want us to, to reflect on the transformation that took place in Peter's life from this point. You see, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, shows us how he learned about the importance of the trials in our life. The Peter we see on the beach wouldn't be saying this, but the Peter that's grown in his transformation is ready to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter understood the need for trials and testing. And he said, we rejoice in it. First Peter 4, 12 through 13 echoes that. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, Peter was growing and understood what was needed to be useful to his king. I think 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 is one of those pinnacle points where we see what Peter really understood. We read about other people who talk about their humility, who display that. You know, we see Peter's being made humble. By the Lord. And here in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, we see Peter's response to it. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Where do you think Peter learned that? I think he learned that on the beach. He learned to cast all of his fears his anxieties on him. He learned that he was humbled and that God would exalt him at the appropriate time. He also knew that as he did that, he was still not going to be perfect. He still needed God. He still needed so many things in his life to allow him to stay useful to God's kingdom, to allow him to be used for the power of the gospel. Second Peter 1, 3 through 8 displays how he continued to fight through the future failures in his life. It reads, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through him, 
who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours in increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter didn't feel it at this moment here in John chapter 21. But God told him he was ready for what was in store. He was going to continue to be with him as he had always been. He was going to provide for him. He was going to be with him each step of the way through the successes and the failures that God allowed him to experience in ministry. You see, I chose us to be in this passage today because I know I've found myself many times where Peter's at. The first time I remember that was when I had graduated from seminary. I had two seminary degrees and no place to go. My plans for ministry had fallen through. I was left scrambling that summer after I graduated looking for a job. And I was struggling. Struggling mentally, spiritually, emotionally with what had gone wrong. What had I done to make it so that I had completed this degree that said I was ready for ministry. And there was no place that God was willing to use me. Different people in my life helped me to get a job at a private school where I was teaching a Bible to kindergarten through eighth graders. And as I took that job, I was still struggling with the fact that this is not where I'm supposed to be. I have these papers, I have these degrees that say I'm ready for ministry. Yet I remember walking into a kindergarten class and realizing I wasn't even ready for that. Guy with no background in teaching steps into a kindergarten class, said, Boys and girls, let's take out your Bibles. We're going to turn to Genesis 1-1. We're going to learn about your amazing God who created the world you live in. Everything in their desk starts coming out. Is this a Bible? Is this a Bible? Oh my gosh, I am completely unprepared for this. Two degrees that said I could tell people about the Word of God and I couldn't even tell a four-year-old, five-year-old what was going on. I wasn't ready. Those pieces of paper didn't say I was ready. They didn't mean that God was ready to use me. You see, he had to humble me. And it took a period of time for me to work through that, that he had to break me down of my pride, saying that I had built myself up to be useful for his kingdom. I had to walk through dark times of trying to figure out, will he ever use me for anything, until I got to the point that I realized those 440 kids were what my purpose was. He'd placed me in their lives to tell them about the gospel. And he wanted to use me. He always did. It was always part of his plan. But I had to be humbled first. I've asked Ben to play a specific song as we close this morning. Because it's a song that I remember spoke to me in this time. And it's a song that's usually a type of song that I always hate. Because it puts words in God's mouth. And most of the songs that put words in God's mouth put the wrong words in God's mouth. They put words that aren't true. They put words that God would never say. But this song spoke to me because it made me reflect on the same questions I was asking of myself. Why was I where I was? Was God done with me? Would he ever use me 
Did he know everything about all my failures? And what was he going to do? And it takes us back to focusing on God's love. How God's love surrounds us and prepares us for those next things. That's what Jesus was on the beach. He was God's love. He was providing for his men. He was providing for them, walking them through what their next step was. Displaying that though they had failed him, he knew that that would happen. It wasn't about their failure. It was about their ability to be used by him. So this morning, as as we reflect on that, as you reflect on your own unworthiness, hopefully you can reflect on your willingness. Do you desire to be used by God? Do you understand that God wants to use you? That the king is ready to use you for his kingdom? Because that's what is needed in our world. Wherever you're at, the king is looking to use you for his kingdom, whether that be your home, but maybe you say, but I've failed miserably here. It's okay. He knows that we fail. He knows that we're imperfect. Maybe you say it's your workplace or your school. God knows that despite your failures there, despite your sinfulness, he will be there for the process of restoration to display Galatians 6-2, to mend what's broken, put it back into usefulness for his kingdom. He desires to use each one of us. The king is ready to use you for his kingdom.